Imagine a world without HIV. At Adimmune, we see that world as a very real possibility. We're pursuing a potential cure for HIV using gene therapy, and we believe we could see the end of HIV in our lifetimes. For people living with HIV, a cure would mean no more lifelong antiretroviral therapy, no fear of AIDS, and no possibility of being contagious. On The Cure Chronicles, we take a deep look into the lives of extraordinary individuals, authors, comedians, doctors, community leaders, educators, advocates, and more, many with their own diagnoses, who are all striving toward the common goal of ending HIV. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Susan Cole, an award-winning HIV advocate, broadcaster, and writer who actively advocates for the rights of people living with HIV. Susan has been named Woman of the Year by NAS Oscars for her work with women of color living with HIV, and has also been honored as one of the top 10 black HIV influencers in the United Kingdom. She leads the community engagement and broadcasting activities for the HIV information charity, NAM AIDS Map. Welcome, Susan, and thank you for joining me. So, so Susan, uh, how did you get into HIV activism, advocacy? You know, tell us a little bit about your backstory. Where do you come from and, and how did you become associated with this community? Sure, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I knew about HIV when I was at university. We had campaigns of tombstones and icebergs. And I, I, at the time, I very much thought that HIV was something that affected other people and would never actually affect me but um, I was diagnosed with HIV through a routine immigration test in America. I just got married to my second ex-husband. I've got three ex-husbands so far <laughs> so um, and yeah as part of the immigration process um, was having an HIV test and it did not cross my mind for a moment that it could come back as positive. But the doctor um, shuffling papers said to me, well, the good news is you don't have syphilis, but the bad news is you're HIV positive and you have about seven years to live. And that's how I was told. And my children were five and seven at the time. So you can imagine what that was like hearing that news at that time unbelievable um seven years to live and the first thought you have is that your 14 year old and your you mm. know your uh, 12 year old are gonna be motherless i mean mm. that's just incredible um what year was that that you received so um this was 99 um 99 Wow. And then they told you you had seven years to live. Yeah, they said that's I very unusual. I mean, I mean that, I know. obviously, <laughs> that's great. They were totally wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that for me, for, for me, my way of coping was to get as much information as I possibly could. And even though I was um, I was living in the States at the time, but I actually got information from NAM AIDS Map, the HIV information charity where I work today. So I've kind of gone full circle. And I realized that actually the doctor was wrong, you know, that I could 
expect to live pretty much as I didn't know it would be as good as it is now back then but you know now I know that I can expect to live as long as everyone else that HIV is not a death sentence and also HIV has not been a barrier to me living a really full and happy life and I've actually gone on to have two more children both of whom are born free of HIV so I've got so three ex-husbands and four kids. <laughs> well, that, that's very interesting part of the story right there, okay? Because I think a lot of people are worried when, uh, you know, they get an HIV diagnosis that that means that they can't have children. Uh, but that's also not true. Um, can you explain a little bit about, you know, what are the, the considerations if you are having a child and you're HIV positive? Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, we're, we're really fortunate. Well, I'm really fortunate that I live in a country where I have access to treatment because we have to remember that even though HIV is not a death sentence, there are still so many people around the world who continue to die from AIDS because they don't have access to treatment. And there still are so many babies who are contracting HIV because their mothers don't have treatment and I was really lucky um, that I was already on treatment which lowered my viral load to a level where it made it just a, the tiny tiniest possibility of transmitting HIV to my babies and yeah they, they were both born um, HIV negative and also what another piece of information that I think lots of people don't realize is that when people are on effective treatment it's impossible for us to pass the virus on to our sexual partners we call right. that u equals u and yes. undetectable equals untransmittable and i think that's another really important message that we need to get across very widely wow i mean there's so many ways we can go on this because you you bring up so many questions for me so um but let's let's stick on that one for a second there's a lot of misunderstanding about HIV in the world, right? And it also seems that it's not just misunderstanding, it's lack of understanding. To me, HIV just hasn't been in the news that much. You know, Hollywood's not making movies anymore. And so as a result, we have an uneducated public and maybe an unempathetic public, or maybe even just a public that thinks that somehow HIV has gone away. It's no longer a consideration. I mean, they may be, you know, some of them may be sitting in doctor's offices right now having that shock that you had because mm. you hadn't been thinking about that you, there was some possibility you could be HIV positive. Mm. But in the United States, for instance, 50,000 new cases per year. That's epidemic levels. Polio was only 60,000 at its mm. peak per year. So it's still there, but we're unaware, right? And, and so, you know, that to me is, uh, you know, a, a very interesting aspect of this. So, what is the reality for folks that are HIV positive and that are well controlled on antiretroviral? What is life like? Yeah, I mean, for, for, for many of us, life is fine, but um, we have to remember that there's, there's so much more than simply having controlled HIV. Um, stigma continues to play a devastating role role on the lives of people 
living with HIV. And it, it's across society. It's on an individual level where individuals are stigmatizing. Many people with HIV experience self-stigma in terms of what perhaps they knew about HIV beforehand and feel quite badly by themselves. But also there's, there continues to be a tremendous amount of stigma and discrimination on state levels. So many countries have stigmatizing discriminatory laws that impact the people, um, the, um, the key populations who are most likely to be affected by HIV. So, so many countries have homophobic laws. There's laws uh, in relation to sex workers, trans people, people who inject drugs. Um, so many of these laws are stopping many people from actually accessing treatment, accessing testing. And until we are able to address those laws, we're not going to be able to end AIDS and end HIV. Um, very recently, last year, um, there was um, UNAIDS had um, a, a meeting in relation to coming up with you know, what we're going to be doing over the next five years. And for the first time, it didn't pass by consensus because some countries refused to include um, laws in relation to um, homophobia and things like that. So we still have a long way to go on both a societal level and a government level. That's fascinating. So what you're saying is it's not just the burdens of, you know, for the folks that are being, that are HIV positive, but it's uh, vulnerable groups that are associated with a high risk of HIV are also facing stigma and prejudice and, and even prejudice issue laws in the mm. countries where they live. Yeah, you don't, so, you know, I live in a very liberal area of the United States in, you know, the suburbs of DC, and you don't see a lot of that here, but I do understand that there's a lot of variability across the United States in terms of the stigmatization. Um, the, you know, that's a, you're a living example that that this is not a gay disease. Mm. You know, you're on your third husband uh, or you're you're over your third husband. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, you know, the, the uh, this is a everyone disease. This is one of the things that I think everybody needs to understand. And also to just be aware that uh, a treatment is not a cure. Right. You know, like it seems to me that one of the key things to do to get rid of this stigma would be to actually be able to cure HIV persons so that, you know, somebody gets a disease, it's like COVID, right? Okay, once they're over COVID, they're not contagious anymore and nobody treats them any differently, right? Um, but I think that this idea that, you know, it's still in there, right? That there's some viral reservoir that if somebody didn't take their meds every day, could they become contagious? I mean, is that thing so scary to people that are, you know, uneducated in HIV, you know, even, even if the, I think the very few people that I meet even know this idea of U equals U. Mm. Isn't that amazing? Yes. Right? And it's been known yeah. for quite a while. That, yes. You know, the, the, first of all, the person sitting next to you on the plane can be HIV positive and uncontrolled and you still can't get it. Absolutely. Right? You know, this is not a casual thing that can be passed. You know, you have to be really intimate with that person sharing a needle or, you know, having intimate relations with that mm. person to pass it, 
even if they are contagious, but if they're well controlled, they're just not contagious at all. Your partner could be HIV positive, well controlled, and zero danger to you. Right? Absolutely. That's remarkable, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So is there, you know, given that you're, that you're, uh, uh, you know, heterosexual and a woman, you know, is there something different about, you know, uh, being HIV positive from that perspective? How does that impact your life, you know, in your just day-to-day existence? I mean, fortunately, um, I'm very conscious of my privilege that, I, I, I feel that in terms of HIV, it hasn't been that much of a problem um, for me. And also I'm very much aware of my rights and I'm very happy to speak up. But for so many women living with HIV, we face intersecting forms of stigma and, and discrimination and disadvantage. And one area where women with HIV are disproportionately affected is gender-based violence. Women with HIV are are significantly more likely to be victims of domestic abuse. And also women who are victims of domestic abuse are more likely to acquire HIV. And very often, so many of the women that I speak with, it's the stigma that plays a role in that. I often hear men say to women, you know, you're so lucky um, that I'm staying with you because you've got HIV and no other man is going to want you. Many women stay with partners because they're threatened that if they leave them, their partner is going to disclose their HIV status to Mm -hmm. other people. So that just plays, that can play uh, an awful role in the lives of many women with HIV. Yeah, the, the self-stigmatization could be almost like a self-esteem problem in terms of relationships, right? And, and it's somebody asserting themselves. And I'm not just talking about women here, right? Mm. I'm talking about anybody, you know, their, uh, their feelings about themselves have a huge impact about how they go out and pursue happiness, right? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. And Absolutely. So yeah, and yeah. I think it's really important that you, you raise the issue of, of happiness because for so many people, there just isn't that kind of discussion about quality of life. It's more about, you know, just taking your pills, being undetectable. And many people don't feel that we're deserving of love or, or happiness or, or having a, a full, fulfilling life. And we just need to like shift the narrative away from that and I do think self-esteem and self-stigma can play a, just a harrowing role on the impact of people but but ultimately stigma from others stigma from society can just just be you know, even more devastating yeah absolutely um so you know how do you divide up the stigma you know um what are the drivers of this? You know, like I, I, I seem, you know, I just remember back to in the eighties when HIV became sort of known and I was in college. And of course, this is the time when, you know, people are experimenting, uh, you know, with relationships and stuff like that. And it, it threw a pall over the whole thing. Uh, it was just this sort of scary, scary, unknown, mysterious concept that, um, you know, just, um, I don't know, it was, you know, always in the back of your mind, but it, to me, that fear factor 
was the thing, right? If you were to find out that somebody was HIV positive, and at that time, we didn't even know how it traveled between people, mm. right? And I think a lot of people, the society was sort of dividing up between, oh, that's just a gay disease. We don't have to worry about it. Yes. And, and people that realize that, that, you know, viruses aren't really that selective in terms of yeah. who they move around to. So they start off in the gay population for one reason or another. You know, patient zero may have been gay. Okay, but it's going to go everywhere, right? Um, it's something that we still don't realize as a society, you know, as we started to think about COVID, there's a lot of people that think you can just, you know, intellectually dominate the virus. Like it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't move around if you have the right attitude about things, <laughs> right? And so, you know, we, there is this desire to protect oneself by just, you know, burying one's head in the sand, right? Yes. Um, so there's got to be, you know, is that still exists? I mean, is, are, is the public, you know, sort of that naive about HIV that, you know, maybe some of them still even think it's a gay disease or do some people think, you know, that, um, uh, you know, they, if you have the right attitude, you can avoid it or it's just not for you or you're somehow, you know, immune to it? What, what's, what is, you know, or, or you just have to reject anybody that is associated with it at all? Don't even talk yeah. about it. You know, you're just going to bring it on yourself. I mean, like, what level is that fear and superstition out there? I mean, I, I think that I, I think it still exists. I think that there still is a great deal of misunderstanding around HIV. And I think that that often drives the stigma. I don't think you know, it's necessarily that the people who are stigmatizing are bad people. I think it's coming from a lack of knowledge and information and often when you don't understand something you're afraid so i think you know one of the the most important mm -hmm. things that we can do to combat stigma is to get the message out about the reality of hiv so people aren't afraid but also to, to get back to women with hiv i think it's also really important to mention that we are not passive voiceless victims, you know, women with HIV, we need to be at the heart of every decision about our treatment and our care and research. I think that's one of the issues where women need to be much more involved is research around HIV. So that's something that I'm, I'm highlighting to you with the, uh, <laughs> the work that, um, that you're going to be doing because you know, often we, we hear about side effects as an issue that affects so many people in relation to treatment. But I think often it's a case that people, there hasn't been enough involvement of women in clinical trials. So when we do see some side effects, and one thing that, that people talk to me a lot about is, is weight gain. And so many women were saying to me when they were moved on to integrase inhibitors that they were putting on a lot of weight. And they were going and, and saying this to their doctors and their doctors was like, well, you know, it doesn't seem that bad. It must be you. It must be the menopause. It must be something else. But it was mm -hmm. only later when there was more research that we found that certain drugs um, the weight gain was significantly worse for women and significantly worse, particularly for women of color. And so I think it's really important and this is like a message to you as well, is yeah. that you know, when you get people involved in your clinical trials, that you are meaningfully involving women and people of color at all stages of your research. 
Yeah, so um, I'm not allowed to know too many things about our participants, but I do know that we are diverse uh, and, and maybe overrepresented in persons of color because in this area, unfortunately, uh, well, actually, I think a lot of people don't understand that even though in the United States, blacks are only around 14% of the population, they bear 42% of the HIV burden. I mean, that's just ridiculous. So you're, you know, in this area, 50% of the people that are HIV positive are also people of color. Crazy, crazy. And there's a lot of other, you know, sort of stigmas and prejudices and things like that, that lead to that issue, right? This is a whole, you know, sort of global issue about uh, the availability of healthcare and, you know, the, and trust issues between, you know, different cultures and, you know, a long history of problems with equality in the United States, which is driving people away from treatment, right? They're, yeah. they're suffering the same problem. Persons of color, you know, suffered uh, more of the burden of COVID, right? Absolutely. Because, you know, sometimes they were slower to, you know, go ahead and believe and trust people that hadn't been trustworthy in the past for them. So you can't blame them. But at the same time, yes, this is really an issue that needs to be highlighted. But let me tell you, you know, we're happy to have, you know, you as an activist and involved in, uh, in AGT. And uh, the good news is, is right now in the clinical trial, we're five for five with no serious adverse events. Oh. So it doesn't look like there's any side effects of this. And theoretically, there shouldn't be because all we're doing is, you know, making a small adjustment in the immune system so that HIV can't infect the cells that are mm -hmm. supposed to be killing HIV. And that just sort of turns the equation around where, you know, yes. the body naturally can control HIV or rid itself of HIV, like you rid yourself of a cold. Your cold, you know, cold virons don't manage to infect cold T cells, and that's why your cold T cells are so good at clearing colds. Well, HIV is the same way. It's just the problem uh, is most people don't have T cells that are immune to HIV. We can change that. So... Hopefully we can get rid of some some of the side effects, you know, of being HIV positive, maybe all the side effects and maybe even the stigma. But what's it like right now in terms of side effects? Like what are typical uh, things that people have to deal with who are on HIV treatment? Yeah, I, um, I mean, fortunately, we've come on a long way from the start of when we had treatment. And it was literally like a handful of pills that people had to take. Very wow. often now, many people are taking just one pill once a day. But that doesn't mean that people aren't experiencing side effects. For many people, it's it's fine. But, you know, one thing I mentioned is weight gain. That's something that's affecting people a lot. And with weight gain, it's not just a matter of, you know, self-esteem and putting on weight. It's the other issues that come with that in terms of someone's cardiovascular risk and things like that. So, you know, it's many people with HIV experience comorbidities and it's really hard sometimes to know whether it's HIV itself that's making us more likely to have other issues. Is it the medications that we've been on for many years? So it, it, can, it can be really difficult. And for some people, um, just the daily reminder of taking a tablet every day can be problematic for them as well. And another issue for some people is that because of stigma around HIV, people in their household may not know that they're living with HIV. So I know of some people who hide their medications away 
or you know may not be as adherent because of the issues um, of of taking daily tablets. So that's you know that those are areas where a cure would be tremendous um, for many people. But I just think it's so important that when there is a cure, and I have incredible faith in what you're doing, is that this isn't something that is just going to benefit the rich. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's a whole nother uh, discussion uh, about that. But I actually believe that this is very much like computer technology, where, yeah, at first, you know, when mainframe computers came out, they were only for the rich. But it's a technology that gets better and better every year and cheaper and smaller. And so, you know, that's computer technology. But I'm seeing the exact same trend in the 15 years that I've been in gene and cell therapy. You know, this thing doubles or four X's in, you know, power every year and it halves or one quarters in cost. So in that sort of environment, if you can dream it, you can do it and you can bring it out to a very wide audience. So keep the faith on that one issue. Uh, I'm a big believer in the competitiveness of gene and cell therapy and the basic technology curve that I've experienced in so many other industries to bring this to everyone ultimately. It's just it may take a little bit of time in the same way that it took a little bit of time for computers to get into the pockets of people in Africa, right? Mm. It may take a little bit of time uh, for the HIV cure to get into their arms, but it'll happen. And I think and I love the fact that you still have empathy, you know, you call yourself privileged, right? You know, a lot of people that have tiny little problems, you know, think are, are you know, see themselves as victims or, you know, uh, you know, are totally focused on their own grievances and, and uh, you know, and self-pity, right? And I think it is important for all of us, you know, to have empathy for one another. And you're sitting here, right? Somebody that I would ask everybody that's watching this to have a level of empathy for your journey, right? You know, this is one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you. I wanted to hear, you know, what it was like to get that diagnosis. I, I wanted to hear one of the things that you just said about that taking that pill every day is a reminder, right? Mm. And, and what does that do to people? I mean, you seem to be handling it so well and you're in a community that understands HIV. You are in some ways in a privileged position just because of the folks that are around you. But you alluded to the fact that there are people taking these pills who haven't shared it with the remainder of their household mm. that they're on those pills. Can you imagine having to hide that? I mean, mm. you know, <laughs> yeah, this is just crazy. I mean, tell me about, about that. So hopefully it doesn't apply to you. But no, I mean, I, I, I've never had any issues in terms of my adherence. I mean, one area where there was a problem was when I was pregnant um, with my, my son, who's now set, just turned 17. Yeah. Fantastic, you know, typical moody teenager, but a, uh. a great boy. <laughs> but, um, when, when I was pregnant, I actually did um, a Demi Moore type of naked cover of a magazine to show that women with HIV can have children who were born um, free of HIV. Right. And what was incredible at the time was that I got a message from a woman who said that her doctor had been telling her to have a termination because she had HIV and she would likely pass it on to her baby. And when she saw that article, um, she, it changed her mind. And she went You saved a life, right? <laughs> a baby has been born. Yeah. Right, and 99.999% and, and chance HIV free as well. Yeah, absolutely. Right? You know, that's yeah. the, and her kid, yeah. her child, this is what they misunderstood. 
Yeah, her child was HIV free, but during my pregnancy, you know, I was taking my medication absolutely perfectly because it was so important for me that I wouldn't pass on HIV to my baby. But Mm -hmm. then I think it was around 34 weeks, suddenly my viral load started to go up a little bit. And I was accused of like, is it that I'm not taking my medication? And I was like, no, absolutely not. But it was because at that time they weren't monitoring the the drug levels in my blood. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but fortunately, you know, my, my son was born by C-section and mm-hmm. you know, he was HIV negative, but I think mm-hmm. it's incredibly important that doctors listen to and believe their patients when they're telling them things, because I think that's yeah. just one of the most frustrating things. And that's one of the issues that I'm hearing from women about side effects. They're going to their doctors, they're saying, you know, I'm having the side effects from my medication. I want to think about switching to something else and often they're not believed or they're dismissed. And very often black women in particular, I'm hearing are experiencing that. And I think that there's so much systemic racism still today in healthcare settings that is impacting particularly on women of color. How do we end that? I mean, what are the things you, you know, I, I know this is you know, a, a, a one week long conference to even discuss <laughs> just the surface level of it, but are there a few highlights about what can we do as people that have at least some awareness of HIV and, and even some of these inequities, right? You know, cause I've heard the exact same stories that you're talking about is that the uh, people that get the worst uh, experience at the doctors are black women, mm. right? That, you know, for some reason, if they complain, they're looked at as complainers as opposed to reporters of accurate information of what's going on in their body. You know, I, 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 I think that's just a blatant, you know, I can only think that this is just a blatant prejudice. I don't like to think of prejudiced people as evil. I think of them really as naive or ignorant or you know and there are people that are you know genuinely you know have a uh an intent you know a prejudice intent but i but i and and i i saw your eyes go because i think i have a very unusual you know perspective on this and that isn't really mainstream and maybe not even acceptable and maybe just wrong and and please go ahead and feel free to tell me that but i i think that if you look back in you know human history mm-hmm. like way way back the tribalism was part of survival and we may have literally you know put it into our genes that you know we are immediately scared of the unfamiliar right and i've seen experiments where they take a white mouse and a black and white mouse which they understand that they're not from the same family and they can do experiments that show that they don't get along but if they force them to live together and get to know that they're not a threat to one another they become friends right yeah but yeah. you see there's a resi- initial resistance and it, it turns out it's equal on both sides. You Do know, you that's the strange surprised thing. to know, Jeff, that I actually agree with you. And my, my, my academic focus was about the cognitive processing in, 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 in discrimination. And, and so much of it does come about in terms of human nature and mm-hmm. how, you know, in terms of societies, how we want to other 
others in, in, in that respect. And, and lots of it comes about from fear, but I mm -hmm. think information and knowledge and understanding is yeah. one of the most important things that we can do. And, yeah. but at the same time that we, it's so important that we crack down with the law on, we, we have laws that stop discrimination and, and that, that people are experiencing. So we need to hit it from all different levels. What do you think about the concept of acclimation as well? Like in, in for instance, in Singapore, that when it, when it was ruled by a king and it was a benevolent king, and I'm, I should know his name and everything because I use this example a lot, but basically what he said is, look, we're a multicultural society. And so, you know, we need to get used to one another. He was sensitive to the idea that people would be naturally mistrustful of one another coming from, you know, whether they were Indonesian, Chinese, Japanese, African, whatever, everybody was living in Singapore. So he passed a law. And he, of course, as a king, you know, passing a law is just you sign it, right? There's, there's no process for that. But he said, every living space, every building that is built for housing must have uh, a basically a basic adherence to the percentage of each one of those cultures and backgrounds and ethnicities within it. So if, you know, Singapore was 20% black and, you know, 40% uh, Chinese and 30% Indonesian or whatever, I don't know whether I just, and there's 10% left over somewhere else, right? <laughs> I'm doing the math right. That's the way the building was too. And that makes yeah. total sense to me, right? First day that you're riding the elevator with somebody that doesn't look like you, you might not talk to them. The second day you might say hi. The third day you might go, how's it going? fourth day you might actually be having a conversation and you'd be like the mice in this study that i saw that were forced to live together and they realized that person's no threat to me and now i can get under that the skin mm. and start looking at and, and you know past the the all of our differences even whether it's you know gender differences right or you know uh all, all sorts of things like that and and come to the realization that i know as a amateur uh, geneticist that the difference between you and me is 0.00001. It's all just a little bit of gene expression, right? Like you and I, given the same experiences, will grow up exactly the same way, right? Mm. That such a huge amount of what we become is how we're treated and what, you know, you know, sort of our arc through life and, and what the, you know, chance brings us, right? That all that stuff is so important. So, you know, that's to me like acclimation. I, I look at my own background and I just grew up in a very liberal suburb of Boston. And so I was exposed to everyone, right? Asians, blacks, you know, all different religions and things like that. And um, as a result, I just, I, I think I just lucked out, right? You know, that I, um, at first I wasn't aware and now I'm the opposite. I'm very aware because I look around and I say, it's not okay to just say, well, I'm colorblind, like I don't see color. No, <laughs> you have to see color because you have to recognize the special, you know, considerations or the impact that that has on the person that you're seeing. It doesn't matter if you don't see it. Mm. You got to remember that everybody else does, or most people do, and that that is affecting this person's life. And that actually will be reflected in your relationship with them right because yes. when you come on as a i'm white right you know i'm about as white as they come and you know you you know when when somebody sees me coming towards them right 
they will have some expectations based on how every other white person before me treated them. And so how whites see blacks, blacks see whites, you know, all these different cultures mix impacts mm. all of us. And we need to be aware of it and we need to, you know, accommodate it in a way, right? Like Absolutely. even in this HIV situation. I, 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 I agree with you. Absolutely. That's um, in relation oh. to that. Well, I got to say, I'm, <laughs> I'm touched. Yeah. I mean, it's just my own yeah. personal views, but you know, I, I, I think about this stuff and, and I'm, you know, I, I, as somebody that's in HIV now, right? Like, and I'm meeting all these folks that are telling me a lot of stories about, you know, their fear of being open about their status, right? Mm. You know, like even heterosexual men that mm. I talk to are like, well, everybody's going to think I'm gay. Yes. You know, well, that's crazy, right? But that's the level of misunderstanding that's out there. So, you know, in, in your daily life, like, what, what are the things that your organization is doing in order hmm. to do this educational mission that you're talking about? Sure, yeah, absolutely. So I, I work for the HIV information charity NAM AIDS Map, and we've been around pretty much since the very start of the um, HIV pandemic. And as I mentioned to you, it was like through NAM that I got information um, in relation to life expectancy. but. One thing that we're doing now, and I think is, is, is incredibly important, is to recognize that HIV information, not everyone wants to get that information in the same way. So, you know, we had lots of booklets and um, we have a website, but not everyone wants that. So the area where I'm leaving on, leading on is actually getting the information out to wide communities in ways that they want it. So um, I've been um, I've been hosting and producing live broadcasts on HIV, where I have guests from all around the world. So I have you know doctors in the USA. I have like professors in Asia. I have you know people from all walks of lives living with HIV. So and and it's been absolutely incredible in terms of people sharing their experiences and getting those messages across in accessible ways, but also ensuring that we're getting accurate and reliable information out to people. And I mean, and it's been a tremendous. And um, so, you know, I, I also co-host a series called AIDS Map Chat with uh, my colleague, Matthew Hodson, who's a gay man. And, you know, between us, you know, you know we have our guests on and we both learned so much through having guests from all around the world. So, you know, we're getting information out there, but also learning as well. And since we've been doing the broadcasts over the last two years, we've had over a million views. So, wow. um, you know, it, it's, it's, going, it's going pretty well. That is fantastic. I mean, we shouldn't even have this series. We should everybody go to NAM ASMAP and go uh, <laughs> see your series, because that's exactly, you know, this is a big part of what I wanted to accomplish with this, is I wanted to have some information out there that would educate the broader public in mm. terms of, you know, uh, what everybody's experience is with this, what the realities are of HIV, uh, you know, both the positive and the negative, right? I mean, I really would like it if people could understand that people with HIV are of no danger to you. So just forget it, okay? You know, just treat them like normal people and, you know, and care for them the same way that you should care for 
everybody mm. in your life. And, you know, and then the uh, the other aspect of it would just be to, you know, go out to the general public and explain to them that, you know, what is there to support them, either from a medical standpoint or from a psychological standpoint or, you know, any of these things so that, you know, folks that may be uh, missing out on the opportunity for treatment or for a better life or the opportunity to pursue their happiness could, you know, come in contact with that information. It sounds like, you know, please uh, tell tell us, you know, where can we go? Is there a particular URL that folks can yes. go to and, and listen to those? Um, absolutely. So if you go to aidsmap.com, that's our website, and we're going to be having broadcasts across this year. So um, talking about different issues, so we're going to be covering um, got one covering the AIDS conference that's um, in Canada this year and also discussing different aspects like aging with HIV that's something that you know for people like I'm I'm 53 and I never imagined that I would get to this age but you know we'll be discussing things like the menopause and HIV and, and yeah, how HIV and aging is affecting women and so we're going to be covering all different aspects um, in terms of discussions um, between individuals and, and also and like video content as well in terms of different aspects of HIV. So go to our website and check it out. Yeah, for certain. No, that, uh, that sounds like a really great series. I'm going to tune into that myself. Uh, and we'd, I'd love to have you on. And have a chat. Oh, well, I would love to be there. I, I don't know, you know, I, I, I think I have an interesting perspective in terms of the arc of the HIV cure. Yeah. I'd love to talk about that with your audience in so much as you mm. find it relevant. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm really just in a position where I'm trying to learn more and more about the experience of the people that we set out to help. Right. You know, my our mission was just to relieve suffering and relieve death from serious human disease because we had this powerful new technology called gene and cell therapy where we can reprogram your DNA, the root drivers of everything in your body. And I, I realized when I came in contact with this is that it was going to revolutionize pharmaceuticals. So we have a very simple mission. And then HIV, almost through serendipity in a way, like just just lucky circumstance became the lead program of our lead programs and then now we're in the clinic with a with a tremendous momentum uh, and and a lot of indicators that we may have something that can functionally cure hiv patients in other words that they would do a one and done therapy and then live a normal life because they could never infect anybody they could never get aids and they would never need to take any special medication. So they're off their antiretrovirals. And then the bonus is, since they're now naturally immune to HIV, they can't be reinfected. I mean, mm. that would be sweet, right? And, and I know this is the dream come true for many, many people. And I try to talk to them and find out about their experiences. But, you know, I'm just learning. You know, that's why it's been so fascinating to talk to you. Um, you know, I, I, do you have any, like, sort of last things that you'd like to tell the audience? I mean, maybe some general wisdom that you've picked up from all of these uh, sessions you've educational sessions you've had and all these conversations with you know folks that are living with HIV or who are advocates or activists in this area and understand it doctors whatever you know some general wisdom about you know how to look at HIV how to look with that people with living with HIV to understand them better and to you know have a, and to normalize our relations. Yeah, absolutely. I think just I think um, some of the most important facts to get across 
um, that is that HIV has changed from what people may think they knew about HIV. For people on effective treatment, it's impossible for us to pass HIV onto our sexual partners. Mm. Women with HIV can have children born free of HIV. HIV does not stop people living a full life and doing any job that we want to do. However, stigma continues to blight the lives of people living with HIV. And until we address stigma, we're not going to be able to address the problem. But most of all, I think it's incredibly important to understand that inequalities continue to drive the HIV pandemic. So even though we've had these tremendous advances, there are still people today dying from AIDS. And until we stop inequalities, we are not going to be able to, to, to end AIDS and end the HIV pandemic. Yeah, I mean, um, that that is, uh, you know, a really great way to close this thing. And nobody could be a better example of exactly what you just said, that you can have a full life, uh, you know, filled with everything that you'd ever hoped for, uh, you know, and ever planned, even living with HIV. And I love your energy. And nobody is going to believe you're 53, by the way. <laughs> uh, so, so, uh, you know, that's just great. And you've been smiling through this whole interview and feeling privileged. And I think that that's, you know, saying that you feel privileged in some way, right? You know, and I just think that's an amazing example uh, for for people living with HIV and for people that aren't living with HIV alike. It's to understand that, you know, to, to have gratitude for the good things in our life and, and to have, you know, faith and hope and keep driving forward in order to bring all those good things into our life. And, uh, and then, you know, you're yet, yet in, uh, an incredible example of empathy for others as well, that here you are living this great life and uh, still, you know, deeply concerned about people that don't have that opportunity. And, and that to me is, you know, the biggest lesson of all. We're all human and we all need to love one another. We all need to empathize with one another. We all need to care for one another. And that's what's unique about humankind, that when we work together, you know, when we collaborate, when we communicate, when we learn from one another, we can lift each other up, costs us nothing. We all rise together. We all get happier together. We all get richer lives together. That is why we dominate this planet and why we're not being chased around uh, sub-Saharan Africa by giant animals anymore, <laughs> right? It's because we learn to work together. Let's not forget that. And, uh, and wow, thank you for talking to me today. And uh, it's just been fascinating. I hope we'll do this again soon. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on. It's been a joy chatting with you. My pleasure. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Cure Chronicles. Stay tuned for new episodes and follow Adamune on social media to hear the latest updates about our ongoing HIV clinical trial. <laughs>